It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's subject is going to focus on something that I don't feel like I've spent as much time speaking about as I would like to have. And it's interesting how sometimes a guest that comes on the podcast draws out things about myself that maybe I haven't put the spotlight on. And with Dr. Jennifer, in our pre-conversation before recording, I asked her more about this book that she wrote about satisfaction was sharing how I feel like it's helpful for us to frame things like happiness around satisfaction. Because as Dr. Jennifer said, society instills in us that being happy is binary, but happiness isn't a mindset. It's a feeling. And like any other emotion, it comes and goes. And when you focus on your enduring mindset, it can become less transient. And through these philosophies of satisfaction that we're going to explore today, I started thinking about what satisfaction means to me. And it reminded me of how I think more so in the past, I don't know if I've done this as much recently, but I often have described things as satisfying. And I've had a few notable times where somebody has said to me, wow, I have never thought to describe something as satisfying. And I think that's really interesting. And maybe this really ties into your work, Dr. Jennifer, of shifting our mindset to satisfaction. I'm curious, do people have a similar reaction to you when you talk about satisfaction versus talking about happiness, for example? Yes, they do. In fact, the reason that I want to start what I would call a satisfaction revolution is because so many people feel like they're failing at being happy, but you can't fail at an emotion. When I say to people, let's try putting a moratorium on the word happy, instead of feeling like you're supposed to end your day and reflect on it and ask yourself, was I happy today? Ask yourself, was I satisfied today? Or instead of when you start your day saying, I'm going to have a happy day, say to yourself, I'm going to try to have a satisfying or contented day. When I say that to people, you can see their brains changing the perspective on how they approach their day and also how they reflect on their day. And it creates an entirely different mindset about how they feel about themselves, gratitude, balance, and so much about their perspective about their lives. It's amazing how much our brains listen to the vernacular that we use and how we talk about everything that we're doing. If you just replace the word satisfaction instead of happiness, then that shift alone changes how somebody's going to approach their day. And that just changing the word can make such a big difference. I'd love to dig into that more because I guess clarifying the difference between happiness and satisfaction. I imagine that there's a great amount of overlap, but perhaps hearing your definition 
of happiness and your definition of satisfaction. Just to be clear, when somebody's sitting here with that reframe, Happiness is dependent on something happening in the outside world. Happiness is a dopamine hit. It's a dopamine is a neurotransmitter in our brain. You can think of happiness as being getting that after piece of clothing or getting a text from somebody that you weren't expecting. Or if you see the first, in those moments, you get this, this rush of a feeling of excitement or happiness. And then that feeling is fleeting. It passes. And then you go back to some kind of stasis. That feeling of happiness is not within your control. And in that way, it's not sustainable. Yes, you feel happy temporarily, but then you're chasing a feeling that's fleeting. Satisfaction is different. Satisfaction is that feeling that you get at the end of a really productive day or how you feel when you're reading a really good book or when you've cleaned out your email inbox. That can be very satisfying. Or the other day I was actually thinking about... You know how sometimes you get the bubble wrap in a box and people like to snap (laughs) on the bubble wrap? I would consider that something that a lot of people find satisfying. That's not making anybody happy. It feels satisfying. Satisfaction is something that can bring you a feeling of contentment or a feeling of peace. Satisfaction with the right techniques is something that it is within your control. And in that way, it's sustainable which is why I want to turn around the conversation so that people are striving for something that is achievable so that they can move beyond happiness to the next frontier, which is satisfaction. It feels like such important work because it seems like maybe we have a lack of satisfaction. And I'm curious in your research, statistically, is that true? Is the majority of the population unsatisfied? Or what are the numbers showing about satisfaction? The numbers are showing that people don't feel very satisfied. I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's something like if you did a survey, something like 27% of people feel very satisfied. Don't actually quote me on that. I don't know that's the exact number, but something like 27% of people feel very satisfied. And I think that part of that is because we don't have the tools that will help us be more satisfied. People are over-focusing on other things and they don't recognize that if you have the tools, you can help yourself personally be more satisfied, which is what I'm offering in my book is these are the tools that can help you on a journey to satisfaction because all of these tools you can do on your own and by changing your mindset about your life. Every single one of the things that I teach people have do require a mental shift, a cognitive shift, because we're brought up to think about each one of them in a different way than what I'm asking you to do, which is why I believe the number is something as low as 27%. And why when people change their behavior to be more in line with the techniques that I'm teaching... I've had people say, it's amazing how much better I feel. I didn't realize I was going to feel so much better using these techniques and feeling so much better about all the things in my life. In fact, the other day, my publisher was so funny. He said, I've been having such bad days. I feel like every time I have a bad day, I just open up your book, read a little bit about it. And then it's amazing how much better my day. I'm very curious to hear about the tools, but I also feel like a good place to start is why are we at a place with such low levels of satisfaction in your opinion? And are there techniques that aren't working? How can we shift from something that's not serving us to something that is? 
I think that the levels of satisfaction are low for two reasons. One, over-focused on happy. So we're constantly trying to chase this dopamine fix. You see it in social media. People are obsessed with romanticizing social media. What is it? like? How do I get to be like that? Except social media is an aberration. People are making movies out of a static post. So people see the static post and then they imagine what happened before and after the post. They don't realize that, oh, look at this beautiful picture. And they think, All of these glamorous things happened before. They don't realize that maybe the baby was crying. Maybe there was a huge argument before or after. They're glamorizing it and then deciding all of those people are so happy. All of those people know how to live a happy life, but that's not accurate. All that you're seeing is a picture and then your brain is filling in all of the gaps with all of these beautiful images about what you wish life could be like in a way that actually doesn't exist because social media is propaganda basically. So one of the reasons is that we are chasing something that actually doesn't exist and social media has made that much worse. And then the other reason that people are struggling with satisfaction is because they don't have the tools. So they're not aware of the ways in which to achieve satisfaction because it's not something that we talk about. It's not that people are learning in school or learning in their homes to be satisfied. Somebody asked me, on a podcast once, we were talking about happiness versus satisfaction. And he said to me, you know, I, I just say to my kids, you know, like, I hope you're happy. And one of the things that I said to him is that's okay, that the message they're receiving is that I hope you're not unhappy. And that's not related to satisfaction. And that puts pressure on a person to feel like if, you know, they're not supposed to be unhappy then they must be happy, which means that if they're not happy, then they're failing at happiness. As opposed to if you were to say, I hope you have a really satisfying day, or I hope you're satisfied, or I hope you're content. And if you were to say that to a child, then what they feel like they're striving for is something in the range of contentment and satisfaction. And then they would try to figure out what's the means to achieve that. But they're not even trying to figure out what the means is to achieve that because we don't ever talk about that. Well, I'm so glad you're talking about it because this feels so important. I mean, there's so much conversation about mental health, but this side of things does not seem to come up often enough. And and I think oftentimes it's the cultural side of it. You mentioned social media, which is a big part of our culture. We have a lot of standards and societal elements that impact how we have conversations with one another, how we relate the questions we ask. And this is one of my favorite parts of doing a podcast is really digging into different ways of thinking and different ways of doing things. And as you're speaking, a few things are coming up. I mean, I think there's a big tie between pressure and social media, of course, right? Because there's the pressure to live a life based on how other people are living. And social media, when you're talking about the propaganda side of things, there's this idea of how you present your life, what that represents about yourself. But the challenge is that if everybody's trying to represent themselves as happy, as perhaps satisfied, they aren't going to show the unhappy moments necessarily, unless it somehow benefits. There are waves of the trend. Sometimes people want to show themselves as unhappy because that ties into what the culture is looking for at that time. So that even that's a pressure of itself, right? The times that we share how depressed we are, how anxious we are. 
sometimes I feel like there's an advantage to doing that. And the struggle is, is that actually authentic and is focusing so much on our unhappiness, just creating more unhappiness? (laughs) I think that that's true, that you could see the balance of extremes on social media. Everything is about extremes. Either people are showing how happy they are or they're showing themselves in the depths of depression, or they're showing themselves feeling suicidal, or they're showing themselves with an extreme eating disorder. And and those things are very serious. And they, I think that it's important that we have conversations around these things to make sure that there's not shame around them, to make sure people are educated around them. But I think it's also important that we don't use them as a way to basically these are not glamorous things. These are very serious mental health issues. But what is missing from social media is what does just contentment look like? What does just the middle path look like? Because what it's all about is extremes. It's about, this is what the highs look like. This is what the lows look like. But nobody's talking about what the center looks like. Nobody's talking about what balance looks like, what the middle path looks like. Because people's interpretation is, well, I guess the center or balance must be boring, but that's not true. Balance is not boring at all. Balance or stasis is actually quite fulfilling. Contentment or peace actually feels very good. I mean, the highs and lows, they don't always, lack of modulation doesn't necessarily feel great all the time. It's just lack of modulation. But the center sometimes can feel very peaceful. In a bubble bath feeling at peace that doesn't feel that doesn't feel bad or boring when you're reading a book curled up on your sofa that doesn't feel bad or boring if you're sitting in front of a fireplace that doesn't feel bad or boring but none of those things are in those things feeling a dopamine hit and feel, saying oh i'm so happy right now but by that same token if, if you're doing any of those things and then reflecting on your day and somebody were to say are you happy right now, are you happy? People get confused by the question because they don't know how they're supposed to respond to, are you happy? Am I happy in this moment? Was I happy today? I don't even know what that question means because happiness is so fleeting. If somebody were to say to them at the end of the day, did you have a satisfying day? That's a very different question to ask. Asking the right questions is so powerful. And I'm curious about your perspective on these kind of extremes and yet like extremes meaning like the extreme levels of happiness, the dopamine spikes. Many people now understand dopamine on a level that they probably didn't 10 plus years ago. It's part of the cultural conversation. And a lot of people have more awareness, whether that's a dopamine hit from something you're consuming or some action that you're taking, or like you said, something out of your control that's really exciting, you weren't expecting, chasing the dopamine. And I think there's a level of awareness around it. But just like social media, there can be awareness and the concept can make sense to people. And yet a lot of people seem to struggle to step away from it. So I'm curious about your tips. Like, okay, you know that social media is not real. You know that what you're seeing is somebody's highlight reels or the worst part of someone's day. Or you might know that social media is used as a way to get something from you, whether it's money or attention. I think a lot of people understand that, but they still struggle to step away from social media, just like they might struggle to step away from consuming something that makes them feel good temporarily, but has long-term consequences. 
So how do you help someone navigate that difference between knowing something as a concept, but actually engaging in more positive behavior and mindset shifts? Dopamine, as many people know, it's addictive. Of course, people would have a hard time breaking any pattern that is addictive. We're drawn to social media because it feels good. Dopamine feels good. Getting a dopamine feels good. That's why a lot of what happens with different kinds of social media, people talk about clickbait. Of course, it's clickbait because you click on something and then you get a dopamine hit and you click on it and you get a dopamine hit. So what I usually recommend to people is that they actually need to take a social media break or do a social media cleanse. It's the easiest way to move away from social media to get some balance back in your brain. The best way that I think to do that is to make a deal with yourself, some deal that you feel like you can actually follow through on. Whether that's, I'm going to take a social media break for a day, three days, five days, whatever you feel that you can actually commit to. Then evaluate how is my mood during that period of time? If it was a day or if it was three days, was I less anxious? Did I feel more balanced? Did I feel calmer? Did I sleep better? What kinds of questions should you ask yourself about what was a change or not in your mood? I mean, typically my clients would say that they notice a change in how they're doing when they take this break from social media. And then when you get to the end of the time period that you took this moratorium from social media, ask yourself if you want to add back the social media or whether you want to challenge yourself to go a little bit longer. Whatever your decision is, when you add back the social media, there's a lot of good apps now that give you time periods that you can be on social media so you can monitor yourself. And when you add it back, it's much easier to add it back with timers than to start by adding timers instead of starting by taking it away altogether. So when you add it back, add it back with the timers because now you've already shown your brain that you do pretty well without it. So then add it back with timers and that can be very, very helpful. I think it's important when you take a social media break to put something on your social media, telling people you're taking a break so that you don't worry that people are going to wonder why all of a sudden you're absent from social media. I usually recommend that. And I think that people are more and more open to taking breaks from social media because they recognize that it can have some damaging effects. I've spoken many times in 2023 about my own break, which has been very extensive. At the end of 2022, I was very curious about what that would look like for me given so much of my career. It wasn't just my personal life. It was also professionally very tied to social media. And yet I had this like deep feeling that I couldn't ignore anymore, that I needed to take some time away and examine it. And it was really interesting because it definitely showed up as an addiction when after like within the first few days of not using an app like TikTok, which is especially stimulating, I felt like I was going through withdrawal. And I started to try to find a what could fill in the gap that that left behind. Because anytime I wanted some sort of dopamine hit, that's when I would use an app like TikTok. And I had to consciously start to list out other things to do so that I wouldn't go back to it. And that was really hard. That period of what do I do now? I recognized through that experience that If somebody doesn't have a tool and a framework and actual guidance around something like this, 
of course you're going to go back to it because your brain has just been trained to associate those things together. Am I getting that psychology right? And how do you help people through those periods of feeling so on their own and dependent, like that being torn between not wanting to do something, but not knowing what to do instead? That's absolutely right. And people are caught with not knowing how to what to replace the dependence on phone or social media with. And I think that it is important to find something else that also releases dopamine as well as something else that's a distraction. So I usually recommend both things that give a dopamine hit and things that could be used as a distraction. There are some things that are very good at giving dopamine hits. Exercise is good. Comedy is actually good. So I usually recommend that if people have stand-up comics that they like to watch, stand-up comics, you can watch also sitcoms, but sometimes stand-up comics, because of the frequency of the jokes, can be better than watching a sitcom. So I tend to recommend watching stand-up comics. And also music. And music, I usually also recommend watching like a concert for the same reason, because a concert can get the adrenaline and dopamine up higher than if you are listening to an album where some of the songs are like mellower than other songs. But if you're watching a concert, they're also usually high energy and that gets the dopamine up. So I usually recommend those three things for dopamine. And then I suggest to people that they balance it with working really hard to find hobbies as distractions. And when you're trying to figure out what hobbies might help as distractions, it's a good thing to go back to when you were a child in school, what things did you like as the extra classes that they would give you? Did you like arts and crafts? Did you like sports? Did you like cooking? What were the things that you liked to do? If you liked ceramics, go do ceramics. If you liked painting, paint. If you liked sports, play tennis or golf or whatever you liked to do when you were in school. But go back to your roots and start to do an examination of what you liked when you were a child and see if you can begin to do some of those hobbies again as a distraction. I've had a lot of clients have a lot of success with that. I have clients that are playing volleyball, some that are crocheting, some that went back to do are doing Legos. Some that I mean, I have clients doing lots of really interesting things, playing guitar, teaching themselves a language. I think that a combination of using hobbies with things that boost your dopamine is very important. And where is the line between adding in too much dopamine? Because going back to what you were saying earlier about satisfaction, is there a point in which you're doing too many things that create dopamine and that detracts from your satisfaction? Definitely can detract from your satisfaction if you're doing things on the phone, like constantly being on the phone with clickbait because there are people that are on the phone. I mean, I typically ask my clients if they look at their phone, how many hours they've been on the phone because it interferes with your ability to get mastery in other areas of your life. The benefit of watching a stand-up comic or watching a concert is they end. There's a beginning and an end and it's over. Uh, most people, I haven't actually had a client yet that sits watching stand-up comic after stand-up comic after stand-up comic or concert after concert after concert. And it's the same thing with exercise. People go to the gym, they work out for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and it's over. And in that way, it's self-limiting. And that helps so that we're not talking about the constant need for dopamine. Then once you're done with that, then you can have mastery experiences. When you add in the hobbies, because part of 
my techniques is hobbies is something that is part of parcel of what my techniques are. Then you have mastery experiences in there, which adds to feelings of confidence and competence and self-respect. And those things help with lifetime satisfaction. And so when you can balance the two, then the activities that you're using for distraction end up also adding to lifetime satisfaction. And you touched upon something there, which is feeling satisfied with yourself. Something that I had read, maybe it was through your social media or a bio, uh, you said that the majority of people do not have an inherent belief in their likability or lovability. And that really stuck with me because I certainly notice this in my work in the mental health space. I notice this in personal conversations, professionally, like there's a lot of self-deprecating. And sometimes I don't know, is the self-deprecating a way for people to bond? Like we go back to somebody not always saying that they're happy. Instead, they might be complaining about what they don't like about themselves, whether it's their body or never feeling satisfied in their career and all that. And I'm, I'm curious about that intersection with satisfaction. If somebody doesn't like themselves, if they don't love themselves, if they don't perceive themselves as likable or lovable, how do they get to a place of satisfaction? I think that the question that you're bringing up is twofold because when people are talking about their self-image and needing support around their self-image, it's about struggling with validation, reinforcement, reassurance. Some of it is about that. And that eventually needs to come from inside. Most people could get a hundred million compliments about any part of their being, and it would not be enough. They'd need a hundred million more because unless they can start to feel good from the inside out, no matter how many compliments they get, validation, reassurance, it's never going to be that final compliment that's going to make a difference in terms of their self-image. It has to come from inside them. And that is part of what I talk about in my book is that you have to gain this feelings of these feelings of self-confidence from the inside out. Seeking them from the outside is not going to work. But the feelings of inherent lovability is slightly different than that because one part is the looking for the validation and reassurance that's not going to get you what you're actually looking for. But the second part is when I ask people, do you actually feel inherently lovable? And most people say no. And the reason for that is because many or most people would say that they have people-pleasing tendencies, that they feel like they secure relationships and feelings of indispensability or make sure that they don't aren't going to be abandoned in a relationship by subserving some of their needs to somebody else and that they like to do acts of service. And because of that, because they say yes to things that sometimes they want to say no to, they they believe that people are hanging around them because of the acts of service they provide, not because of the person that they are. And then what that does backhandedly is that is what interferes with their belief in inherent lovability. All of these people would actually go away if I didn't do these things for them and I would be left with no one. So it's until you peel away all of that people-pleasing and only do 
the things that feel authentic to you that you want to say yes to and realize that everybody is still around because everybody really just loves you for you so that it's okay. You can love you for you too. That that's when people start to believe, oh, I am lovable. I am likable. And it's not just that people want me to be around because I'm going to run this errand for them or solve this problem for them or rush in to rescue them. That really resonates with me on a deep level that I want to <laughs> examine more after this conversation. I mean, I've certainly identified with the people pleasing. And it's something that I try to check in with myself about because I don't want it to have that ripple effect that you're describing. But it's really hard to untether ourselves. And there's so many layers to it. I think there's going back to the cultural side of things and how we're conditioned and what the messages we're hearing and our deep desires to be loved and to survive, you know, all these basic human needs, it can be extremely confusing. And that leads me to another question for you, which is sometimes in the professional space, especially in entrepreneurship, I would say, there'll be this ethos of, well, you should never be satisfied because if you're satisfied, then you might become too stagnant and you won't grow. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, obviously, the show often focusing about getting outside of your comfort zone. Is there a point in which being satisfied is detrimental? Or is that just kind of a saying that's gone around in, in some maybe like hustle focused spaces of you always have to keep striving in order to make the most out of your life? I would say that. Again, I'm very focused on language because I think our brains are always listening. I would not say that satisfaction interferes with the hustle, and I would not say that satisfaction interferes with entrepreneurship. As an entrepreneur myself and a person that focuses on satisfaction, I can say that I am very satisfied, and that definitely has not interfered at all with my ambition. What I would say does interfere with ambition and does interfere with the hustle and also is part of my book is complacency. And I think that that is a critical piece. When people allow themselves to become complacent, allow themselves to wheel spin, become too comfortable doing what they're doing, stop challenging themselves, stop living on the precipice of their discomfort, stop pushing themselves, then it is at that point then they become dissatisfied. And it is within that dissatisfaction because they're not challenging their competency anymore that things start to fall apart. So I actually think that it's complacency leads to dissatisfaction. And it is within all of that that you see the entrepreneurship fall apart, the hustle fall apart, and it all falling apart. And I think that that's really the language that goes along with that as opposed to satisfaction. I appreciate your dedication to language because I certainly feel triggered uh, when people use certain statements one that I've detested for a long time is busy. <laughs> I'm like, it just feels like a filler word. It feels like it's lost a lot of meaning. Even authenticity. There are words and phrases that become very trendy. Everybody starts saying them. Then they start losing their impact, their meaning. And it can be very confusing, though. Here's something repeated over and over again. As you said, our brains are always listening. So our brains are picking up on these things, even if on this a certain level, we can 
critically think, okay, this doesn't make sense. I don't believe it. There might be part of us deep down inside that still believes it or you know, still is confused by it. And so the fact that you clarify the language and you give options and you specify what certain things mean, I, I find extremely helpful. One area that I also notice people feeling very confused by and also maybe maybe becoming complacent in is sleep. And statistically too, I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but I have done a number of episodes on sleep. I brought on somebody who works in the sleep field as a journalist to talk about this. And statistics around how many people struggle with sleep is alarming. I feel like it's around 80% of people have some sort of a challenge with sleep, whether that's they're not getting enough sleep, they can't fall asleep, they can't stay asleep, their clock feels not in harmony with what they want. I mean, just sleep is such a big challenge. And I think something else I had read that you said, actually, no, it was summarized, maybe not your exact words, but in a press release for coming on the show about how people can do everything right throughout the course of the day, like practicing these all these healthy habits, going to bed early and still find themselves unable to fall asleep. And I'm curious as a starting point, how you guide somebody through feeling more satisfied with sleep. Sleep is a huge problem. I agree. I mean, first of all, I think sleep is extremely important. Sleep is important in terms of efficiency and effectiveness of your brain, how distractible you are, how fragile you feel, your mood state. So it is something that needs to be solved and not something that needs to be taken lightly. But I do think it's an extremely difficult issue to solve sometimes. I think first checking on in on sleep hygiene is important. And that means checking in on whether the person is doing everything they can do to boost tonin to make sure that they're not delaying melatonin production before they go to sleep. Things that delay melatonin production is looking at screens for a long, you know, right up until bedtime. That delays melatonin production. So it would be better to put all screens down an hour before you're trying to go to sleep and instead listen to read a book or listen to a book on like an Alexa or listen to bedtime stories on an Alexa. I tend to recommend that. But putting down the screens is important. Also, making sure that the room is very dark is important, that there's no sound. So the more that you can make the room comfortable, people have a particular sleep position, making sure that you know what your sleep position is and getting into your sleep position, making sure you have a comfortable mattress and a comfortable pillow. You want to make sure that it's as comfortable as it can be. The temperature in your room is very important because if the temperature is too hot or too cold, then you won't fall asleep. I also recommend that people keep a pen and paper by their bed because if you are falling asleep th trying to think of all of the things that you need to do the next day, you will never go to sleep. It's really important that you download all of the things that are running through your mind onto a piece of paper so that you don't feel like you have to try to memorize them as you're falling asleep. If none of those things are working, then you need to try to look for alternatives. What other options are there to help you fall asleep, whether they are medical remedies or natural homeopathic remedies? And there are a lot of natural homeopathic remedies that you can look for as helpful sleep options. And there are also medical remedies that you can look for as sleep options. But whatever it is, they need to be explored because of the importance of sleep. 
Well, speaking of natural remedies, that's a great segue into how I was introduced to you. I heard from the PR representative from this company called Quiet Mind. And I was very curious about this. You know, anything sleep related? I have a sleep disorder, I suppose, that I haven't been able to get to the bottom of. I've spoken about this so much over the last few years as I've been trying to figure out this journey. And sometimes just trying to figure out your sleep issues can create a lot of anxiety. And oftentimes anxiety is something that carries through the whole day. It's not always just related to sleep or health challenges. Um, I've also spoken about my journey of looking into neurodivergence and, and understanding things like ADHD and autism. And there's just a lot of different avenues that you can take with these things. And, and one thing that became incredibly helpful for my sleep routine was a weighted blanket. And I got one, I think about a year and a half, two years ago. It's so great. For me, that pressure on my body really helps reduce anxiety. I feel comforted by it. I feel safer. My whole life, I've always liked heaviness, like heavy blankets on me, but there would be the times during the summer where it was too hot to use a heavy blanket. I'd still want one. And so when I learned about gravity products, I was like, this is a game changer. And that's what quiet mind is. So when I heard about Dr. Jennifer, it was in this email about this uh, body pillow or a, a weighted pillow. I guess it's not the traditional body pillow, which I also utilize. I sleep with a huge body pillow most of the time. But that's actually, you know, speaking of downsides, some of the things that help me sleep can be incredibly inconvenient, especially when I'm traveling. So this quiet mind pillow is this small pillow. I'll, I'll put it in the blog post that goes along with this episode. There'll be a picture of it. And then when I finally get the video up on YouTube, you can see the visual that I'm holding up. It's like this size of your standard uh, decorative pillow on like a couch or something. It's square and you can choose different weights. And I chose to get a 12 pound weight because my weighted blanket at home is 15 pounds. And I really liked that heaviness, but I wanted to try something a little less heavy because anyone that's tried to carry around a weighted blanket away from their bed or their couch or something knows how like challenging that can be. It's not that 15 pounds is that much weight for most of us, but it's awkward. And so the benefit of this little compact pillow is that it's actually not awkward at all. When I got this in the mail, I thought that's 12 pounds. Like it feels so light to me. And I just got this a few days ago. I've been using it in a variety of different ways. And I wanted to bring this up with Dr. Jennifer because she's on the medical board of the medical advisory board, correct? Of Quiet Mind. I'm curious to hear from you, like what drew you to get involved with this company? What benefits do you see from this? And what makes something like this a nice tool or an option, alternative or addition to things like a weighted blanket? I love the weighted quiet mind pillow. I'm obsessed with it. I was approached about being on the medical advisory board. I've been asked before to support different products and have always said no until this product because I am so obsessed with this particular product. 
And I'm obsessed with it for a few reasons. One is that I'm obsessed, like what you said, like I love weighted products and I've always loved weighted products because of the value that they can produce for people. They can alleviate anxiety. They can alleviate stress. They can help people that are feeling distracted. They can help people unwind and do so many things, whether it's when you're at home or honestly, even when you're at work. And they do this by making you feel more relaxed, you feel calmer, you can feel more grounded. The weight of the pillow increases the neurotransmitters of dopamine, which we talked about earlier, and serotonin. And those neurotransmitters help boost your mood. They improve your mood. And by improving your mood, they reduce feelings of anxiety and they help you feel calmer. They also help by increasing the chemical melatonin in your brain, which is the chemical that helps you sleep, which we were also just talking about earlier. So in that way, the pillow, and we were just talking about its size, it's compact, it's a convenient pillow, and you can move it from room to room. So if you're anxious and stressed, you could have it in your living room. In that way, it can help you unwind. And if you are having trouble sleeping, you can move it into the bedroom and it can help you sleep. For me, when I'm using it in the living room, I can lean it up against me and like hold it against my body, or I can put it against my stomach and then hug it. If I'm bringing it into the bedroom, then if if I'm a side sleeper, so I can hug it when I'm side sleeping. But if I happen to move onto my back, then I can put it on my stomach and I can hug it that way. What I like about the pillow is that it is very huggable. It's like the perfect size to be a huggable pillow. And just like you, my favorite is the smaller size. It comes in a small, medium, and large size, and I like the smaller one. But my son picked the medium size because he likes the medium size pillow. And I have found people to like different sizes of the pillow. And I think one of the benefits of the pillow is that it comes in different sizes. What drew me to the pillow over blankets, I have never actually recommended to clients to purchase the blankets despite my love of gravity products is because I have found them to be so cumbersome to move from room to room. I also have found them to be very unattractive. And although I thought that they are great products, I tend to not recommend to clients things that I wouldn't want to have in my own home. And when I saw this pillow, I felt like I'm very comfortable having this pillow in my own house. It is a pillow that does look like a decorative pillow. You could put on your couch. You could put it on your bed. It wouldn't look to somebody like, oh, that's a natural remedy pillow. It doesn't look like a natural remedy product. And it doesn't, because of its, you know, unobtrusiveness, it doesn't scream, that person is having problems with anxiety or that person's having problems with sleep. And I really appreciate that because I think that, Our issues should be private unless we choose to make them public. And that's one of the things that I really like about the pillow is that you can't tell. If you choose to make that known, great. But if you choose not to, the pillow doesn't scream that. Whereas some of the blankets do scream that and some of the other pillows do scream that. And that was one of the things. The fact that it is something that you can move around, it is unobtrusive, it's an attractive pillow, all of those reasons was what attracted me so much to the quiet mind weighted pillow over all of the other gravity products. You made so many great points that I feel excited to try it out. Like I said, as of the time of this recording, I've only been using it a few days. And when I first got it, my initial reaction, it's very nice looking. The color that I picked was like a dark blue. It came in this beautiful box with this nice welcome note. 
and the founder was telling the story of why he designed it. And I just thought, wow, this is really cool. Like I felt comforted immediately. (laughs) But then I'm like, I don't really know how to use this because I've been using the blanket, for example, which it's a blanket. Like I just put it on top of me and I felt the, the difference right away. But I have noticed that through the conversation of weighted blankets, some people don't like them because they feel too heavy and they feel uncomfortable while they're sleeping. They might only use a weighted blanket for an hour, whereas someone like me, I want it on me all night long. It, that is so comfortable. But some people just need that temporary pressure or the relief. So the pillow is is such a nice alternative. But I'm curious to hear more about how you can use it. When you were saying you would prop it up next to you, I've tried that and I wondered is this actually doing anything? Like there's certainly a level of comfort because it just like any pillow, it feels nice to layer against. I wouldn't say this one, I would want to prop my head on it. But when I it's next to me, I can feel the pressure. That was like the subtle difference. What is going on in the body and the mind just by lying next to something like this? So how I do it is I go to the corner of my couch and lie it like next to me so that the weight is on the side of my body so that I feel the weight on the side of my body as I'm curled up on the couch and I feel the weight that way. And then I can either wrap my arm around it or just feel the weight on the side of my body. And then I can either close my eyes to unwind and just like try to experience the weight that way. Or if I want to open a book and read it while I'm experiencing the weight, I can do it that way. But depending on the position that I put the pillow on my side as I'm curled up that way, I can feel a good amount of weight. And that is relaxing in a way that it is. I can feel the dopamine and the serotonin release. I mean, is it as much as if I lay down on the couch and and hugged it or sat up and, and hugged it? Maybe not as much, but I think that if you position the pillow in such a way, like how I'm doing when I like curled up on the side of the couch, I can feel the weight enough that it is definitely helping me unwind and helping me feel soothed and calmer. And when you're talking about hugging, I think there might be a few different reactions. Like many people know the benefits of hugging someone, although I would love to hear it from you. I think there's a certain amount of time hug can be beneficial. It's not just like a quick acknowledgement of somebody, but actually hugging someone for a certain period of time releases dopamine. Is that correct? Dopamine, and I think it might release oxytocin also. But oh, dopamine. right. Okay, so, so it's, it's really releasing <laughs> these chemicals. And when I learned that, I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to make a concerted effort to hug someone as long as they'll let me <laughs> before yeah. it becomes awkward. It's an actually a very interesting thing to notice, like how you feel after a hug with a person. But what's cool about the pillow is that if you are somebody, maybe you don't have anyone in your life that you can hug or want to hug, it might not be accessible. Having a pillow can create a similar release in your body, I'm assuming. Is that right? Definitely. And what's good about the weighted pillow as opposed to a regular pillow is that it's the weight of the pillow that mimics to the brain more the feeling that you're actually hugging someone as opposed to if you're just hug a regular pillow because of the give so much, it doesn't sort of tease the brain into feeling like you're actually hugging something. And in that way, it's better in terms of 
the weight really helps in terms of getting the brain to release everything that it would to mimic what you would get from a hug because the give on a regular pillow is too much. So the weight really, really helps because when you hug somebody, you get a little bit of give, but part of what you're getting is the weight of the other person when you're hugging them. And that's part of what you're getting with the release. And there's a lot of research that hugging is good. So hugging the pillow would help. And I mean, hug it as long as you want. I mean, there's nothing to say that you can hug the pillow too long. I mean, it's not like you can hug anything too long. I mean, there's plenty of people that just like you said, you said you sleep with a body pillow, which I think is great. And when you're sleeping with a body pillow, you're hugging the body pillow until I guess you move away from the body pillow. But there's nothing to say that hugging something for too long is ever too long. So you can hug this weighted pillow for as long as you can hug it and it's only doing good things for you. While these might sound like simple tips, everything that you've been sharing today is such a great reminder because not everybody feels comfortable discussing these things. As you were saying before, the benefit of a pillow that looks decorative is that it doesn't draw attention to the reason that you have that pillow. There's benefits to something that's a little bit more subtle. And there's also benefits to speaking about it very honestly, as you have been today, just to remind people that they have these tools available and that they don't need to suffer in silence and they don't need to put aside their needs. These are very basic things for a lot of people. And sometimes these are specialized things. There might be a specific reason that you want something. I think there's also a ripple effect to discussing these and and having tools around. I'm curious to see with this pillow, for instance, will other people that see my pillow want to try it out? And will is it that creating a conversation about anxiety? Is that creating a conversation about pressure and hugging? And the human touch, you know, all of these things that can start to evolve just by doing something. You are not just helping yourself, but hopefully others as well. And before we bring the conversation to a close, Dr. Jennifer, I'd love to circle back and see if there are any other tools that we haven't mentioned today that can help with somebody feeling more satisfied. You did mention reading, for example, which of course, reading your wonderful book, I'll link to that in the description of the podcast right there on the podcast player. That'll be a clickable link. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a blog post that goes with this episode with all the links, including Quiet Mind, likely be an affiliate of the company, by the way, in full transparency. So there might be some commission involved for me there, but that's because it's really making a difference for me. And then your wonderful book, any other references we've made, that'll all be in the blog post for this episode. But is there anything we haven't touched upon yet that you would like to serve as a reminder or offer something new for somebody to increase their satisfaction? Well, since we spent a good amount of time talking about people-pleasing, inherent lovability, why don't I offer a tool people can use to help them with that since I didn't offer a tool related to that. So how about if I do that? Sounds great. (laughs) I want to hear it. (laughs) One of the recommendations that I make for people in terms of people pleasing is that people who, all of us, I guess, get requests to do things for people a lot of the time. And we don't know whether we have to assess whether we want to do the thing, the request that's being made of us, or we don't want to do the request. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And what I recommend to people is that you engage in what I call or have coined a resentment check-in. 
And how you do a resentment check-in is that you ask yourself if what I've been asked to do will never be valued and will never be reciprocated ever by this person. Do I want to do this thing if I know that? If I know that it will never be appreciated and it will never be valued and it will never be reciprocated, do I still want to do this thing? Then you do a body scan. And when you do the body scan, you evaluate how you feel in your body when you ask yourself that question. Do you feel comfortable in your body or do you notice some kind of tension in your body, distress in your body, anxiety in your body? If you notice any tension, anxiety, or distress in your body, then you might want to consider editing the request that's being made of you or delegating the request that's being made of you or saying no to the request that's being made of you. In my book, I give lots of suggestions about mindful ways to say no to requests. If, however, you do the body scan when you ask yourself the question and you don't feel anything in your body, you feel completely fine about it, then sure, go ahead, say yes to the request and move on until the next time that somebody makes a request for you and then of you. And then I recommend doing the same thing. That is so helpful. I don't think I've ever heard that framework before, but it, it also sounds like a little obvious once you're saying it. I'm like, of course, I, I should check in and ask myself these questions. But I love the idea of questioning like why you're doing something and then how would you feel based on these different outcomes? And that's something that I've kind of conceptualized for myself whenever I'm interacting with other people. Like, what is the purpose for them and for me? What am I giving and what am I receiving to make that reciprocal, to get that balance that you talked about earlier, which I also thought was such a wonderful point of how balance might not seem that appealing. And when you said that, it sounds so silly to me. <laughs> like, aren't people craving balance? Like, isn't that what people say they want? And yet, we often live a life of unbalance. And so how can you, you want something, but you're not actually doing it? That's been a big part of this conversation and it all ties into satisfaction. It's all about asking yourself these important questions so that you can make the decisions that work best for you and not necessarily best for others. Sometimes that's going to be at odds. And sometimes you do need to weigh out these things. I'm just so grateful for the language you use, for the questions you ask, for the tools you provide. It has been so helpful for me. I'm going to carry through a lot of this into my life, including with the quiet mind pillow, which I'm literally carrying around. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. For somebody that is interested in taking the next step with you, of course, as I mentioned, your book is an option for them, but you're on social media. Actually, before we go, I am curious. I meant to ask you this earlier about your own relationship with social media. Given everything you know, how do you approach social media? How do you find that balance for your life? Nobody ever asks me that. That's a good question. So I actually don't like social media. It is on brand for me not to like social media. And as you mentioned before, when you were talking about your business, the problem is that from a business perspective, social media is necessary. So I needed to figure out how I was going to balance wanting to live my life according to my brand, but also knowing that having social media was necessary. And so how I managed that was that I write the posts for my social media, and then I have somebody else who has all of the login and user information for my social media. I don't even have it. 
and they do the posting for the social media. And then if there's questions about what needs to be responded to on the social media, they will ask me about that, how I want to respond separately. But in terms of knowing the information about followers or likes or whatever, I have no idea about any of that. I keep that all that noise out of my head. I don't think that it would be helpful to me at all. And that has helped me feel that I can be true to the brand is that I focus more on what I'm putting up than how it's being received. That is a wonderful approach that I've often found for myself that having somebody else look at things like numbers, creating that buffer, knowing if there's a comment or a post that you might not want to see, like that support can play such a big role in navigating these terrains that can be a slippery slope. So thank you so much for addressing that. And again, for all of your time, for exploring how we can go beyond happiness, the title of your book, to a life of more satisfaction, a life of more balance, a life that involves checking in with yourself, asking the important questions, using language that really serves you. It's just been an absolute delight for me. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And if anybody wants to find me, you can also find me on Instagram at Gutman underscore psychology or on my website, which I'm sure you'll have on your blog and on and on your site. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'll make it very easy for getting in touch, for taking the next step with the book the website, the social media, which we now know a little bit behind the scenes of, that'll all be linked at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in that blog post for this episode. Or to make it really easy, just look at your podcast player. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube, when it comes out, the same thing will be there. There'll be a description with clickable links there so that you don't have to go wandering around the episode to find, or the internet to find this information that's all in one place right there within whatever platform you are listening or watching today. Thanks again to the listener. And of course, thank you to Dr. Jennifer for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.